0: Navy history arriving welcome back to the US Navy history podcast I'm Dale and I am joined by Steven my XO
1: hi Steven ah oh, ahoy there I feel so much better after that shower <clears throat> so we're gonna get back into the Seminole Wars I'm, I'm feeling refreshed enough to hear about more crimes against humanity And I'm sure there's going to be plenty of those. So let's get underway.
0: So Spain ceded Florida. That's where we left off to the U.S. And the U.S. took possession of it in 1821. Now, government was slow in coming to Florida because General Andrew Jackson appointed a military governor of Florida in March of 1821 but did not
1: arrive in Pensacola until July of 1821. So for those months, what while well, he had an appointed military governor, he was just acting as his own little Florida king?
0: A military governor is going to be a military governor. That is not going to be a governor that is going to be looking at people's need. They're pretty much just going to be a police state. So... Jackson resigns his post in September and goes home in October. He only spent three months in Florida. And the guy who took over for him, William P. Duval, was not appointed until April in 1822. And he immediately leaves for an extended visit to his home in Kentucky.
1: Yeah, that seems like a sensible thing to do.
0: And, of course, a lot of other official positions, had similar turnovers and absences. Now, the Seminoles were still a problem for the new government. In early 1822, Captain John R. Bell, who was the Provisional Secretary of Florida and temporary agent to the Seminoles, prepared an estimate of the number of Indians in Florida he said there were about 22,000 Indians and 5,000 slaves held by Indians. He estimated that two-thirds of them were refugees from the Creek War and had no valid claim in the U.S.'s view to Florida. Indian settlements were located in and around the Appalachia River along with the Sawnee River. There were also... Settlements southeast of the Apaluchua Crary, southwest and a little north of Tampa Bay. Now, these officials were concerned from the beginning about the situation with Seminoles. So, a treaty was signed establishing a reservation. And because of this reservation, the tribes were not sure where they could plant crops and expect to be able to harvest them.
1: Yeah, I I was going to say, my gut's telling me they selected pretty untillable land for this reservation. Florida isn't exactly known for having, you know, great growing areas. A lot of... A lot of Florida is a swamp. I was going to say, a lot of swamp. A lot of gators.
0: Yeah. And the tribes had to contend with white squatters moving into land that they occupied. There was also no system for licensing traders, and unlicensed traders were supplying the Seminoles with liquor. And because of the part-time presence and frequent turnover of officials, meetings with the Seminole tribes were canceled, postponed, and sometimes had to set a time and place for new meetings. So the treaty we just talked about was called the Treaty of Multer Creek. So this established a reservation in the central part of Florida Territory. A meeting to negotiate this treaty was scheduled for early September of 1823 at Malter Creek, south of St. Augustine, which had about 425 tribe members attending the meeting they chose Nemathea to be their chief representative or their speaker. Now, the treaty that was negotiated, the tribe was forced to go under the protection of the United States and give up all claims to lands in Florida in exchange for a reservation of about 4 million acres. This reservation would run down the middle of the Florida peninsula, from just north of present-day Ocala to a line even with the southern end of Tampa Bay. The boundaries were well inland from both coasts to prevent contact with traders from Cuba and the Bahamas. I'm not overly
1: familiar with the how good or poor of quality of land that is, but that sounds like a pretty bad deal. Especially
0: for trading, since they were not allowed on the coast. Right.
1: But I think
0: the really swampy parts of Florida are further south. Now, six of these chiefs were allowed to keep villages along the Appalachia River. Now, under this treaty, the U.S. was obligated to protect the tribes as long as they remained law-abiding. You can see how that would be up to interpretation.
1: And also... Obligated doesn't mean they're actually going to do it, because who's going to hold them accountable?
0: The government was supposed to distribute farm implements, cattle, and hogs to the tribes to compensate them for travel and losses involved in relocating to the reservation. And they were also supposed to get rations for a year to help them along while they established their farms. The government was also supposed to pay the tribe per year for 20 years and provide a interpreter, a school, and a blacksmith for 20 years. In return, the Seminole had to allow roads to be built across the reservation and had to apprehend and return to the U.S. any runaway slaves
1: or other fugitives. So, to summarize, and again, I'm sure they had no intention of actually following through with this. We're going to do the absolute bare minimum. In exchange, we expect you to bend over backwards.
0: It's more, we're going to put you in this fourth million acres, but we're still going to build roads through your territory that we're giving you, and you have to give us back any slaves and fugitives that you find. Also, we're going to pay you a little bit for a little while, and provide you with a interpreter so you can communicate with us. Schools so we can educate you to because we think you're ignorant
1: savages. And we're going to introduce you to technology by giving you a blacksmith. Yeah. Stuff they didn't ask for. Yeah. And uh, running through the math, what they were offering was effectively by 18, by by 2022 money, about 150 K a year. And this was for the entire tribe this wasn't like per community, right? Correct. Yeah. What what do you think hundred and fifty K a year can do for uh by the conservative estimate about thirty thousand people spread across four million acres? Not much. Okay, so I'm not crazy. No, that's like five bucks a person. You get a gumball, you get a gumball, everybody gets a gumball
0: so, the treaty taking into effect initially was stalled. Fort Brooke, with four companies of infantry, was put up at the present-day Tampa in 1824. They wanted to show the Seminole tribes that the government was serious about moving them onto the reservation. Now, June James Gadsden who was the principal author of this treaty, was charged with implementing it. And he reported that the Seminole were unhappy with the treaty and were hoping to
1: renegotiate it. Of course they're unhappy with it. It's absolute garbage. Listen, guys, this is a good deal. All you have to do is abandon the homes you've lived at for years, completely upend your way of life, embrace this way of life we're forcing on you, let us do whatever the hell we want. And, yeah, you... Oh, uh, and no, no contact with uh, any outsiders that we aren't cool with.
0: So, of course, fear of a new war started to creep in. So, in July, Governor Duval mobilized the militia and orders the Tallahassee and Miccosukee chiefs to meet him in St. Mark's. At this meeting, he orders the Seminole to move to the reservation by October 1st in 1824. So now there's a deadline. You gotta love ultimatums. Now, even though the move hasn't begun yet, Deval does begin paying the tribes their compensation for the improvements they were having to leave as an incentive to move. He also had the rations that they had promised sent to Fort Brook on Tampa Bay for distribution. So the tribes finally begin moving onto the reservation but within a year some of them returned to their former homes now by 1826 most of the tribes had gone to the reservation but of course they were given this reservation because this was pretty crappy land that the Americans didn't want so they were not thriving they had to clear and plant new fields and cultivate fields that had suffered in a very long drought. Some of these tribes were reported to have starved to death. Now, to their credit, both Colonel George M. Broke, commander of Fort Broke, and Governor DeVol did write to Washington asking for help for the starving tribes.
1: Okay, that's more than I would have expected, actually.
0: Now, the requests were caught up in a debate over whether the people should be moved to west of the mississippi river so for 5 more months no additional relief reached them now these tribes slowly started settling into the reservation there were small clashes with white settlers with the tribes and fort king was built near the reservation at the site of present-day Ocala, and by early in 1827, the army did report that the tribes were on the reservation and were peaceful. So, during this five-year peace period, some of the settlers continued to call for removal. They, of course, were opposed to any such removal,
1: They had already been removed once. They did not want to go through it again. Yes, especially when that second removal would involve not moving, you know, probably 30, 40 miles to the center of the peninsula in poor land, but moving probably hundreds, if not thousands of miles to the plains, if Congress was talking about relocating them west of the Mississippi.
0: Yeah. Now, most of the white people, they regarded the... Somali as simply Creeks, who had just recently moved to Florida. While these tribes claimed Florida as their home and denied they had any connection with the Creeks. Again, all Indians are the same in the eyes of these bastards. Gotta love it. The tribes and slave catchers argued over the ownership of slaves. Because the new plantations in Florida increased the pool of slaves who could escape to the tribes territory. So, Governor Duvall is now worried about the possibility of an Indian uprising and or a slave rebellion. So he asks for additional federal troops. But instead in 1828 they close Fort King. So the food problem doesn't go away. They are short of food and the hunting Of course, when you have 30,000 people in one small area, because, yes, it's 4 million acres, but still,
1: that's you're going to go through the game animals there pretty quickly. 6,250 square miles, which that roughly works out to about 5 people per square mile just for living.
0: Not to mention eating Mm -hmm. and everything else that they need to do.
1: Which, if you are absolutely super efficient... With what crops you select, you know, you're on top of rotating, and it's really good soil. You can make one acre work for a person. And this is terrible land in Florida.
0: Plus, they had no access to the ocean, so no seafood mm. to
1: supplement their diets. Yeah, th- th- so this is a textbook case <laughs> of, you know, the government doing this with the intention of cutting down on the Native American population. Right. So, of course,
0: the tribes wander off of the reservation so they can get food. So, the President of the United States brings back Andrew Jackson in 1828.
1: Can't we just let this guy be retired and... I I don't know. Like, let, let him pull wings off butterflies or something to get his jollies off. Right.
0: Two years later, in 1830, Congress passes the... Indian Removal Act, which Jackson prompted, which was to resolve all these problems by moving the Seminole and other tribes west of the Mississippi. So in the spring of 1832, the Seminoles on the reservation were called to a meeting at Payne's Landing on the Oklawaha River. The treaty that was negotiated there calls for them to move west, if the land were suitable for them. They were to settle on the Creek Reservation and become part of the Creek tribe. So, forcibly moved and told, you're part of them now. A delegation of seven chiefs were to go and inspect the new reservation and didn't leave Florida until October of 1832. So they toured the area for several months and talked to the Creeks who had already been settled there. And then the seven chiefs signed a statement on March 28th of 1833 that the new land was acceptable. So more than likely, I can say with confidence that this was probably forced. Because when they got back to Florida, the first thing they did was say, no, we didn't say this. We did not sign this. We were forced to sign this. Yeah, that
1: that makes sense.
0: Oh, and by the way, we don't have the power to decide for all the tribes and bands that are on our reservation. Now, there were some villages in the area of the Appalachia River that were persuaded and went west in 1834. So even though they claim that They hadn't signed it, that this was not good. We were forced to sign it. The United States did ratify the Treaty of Payne's Landing in April of 1834. This treaty gave them three years to move west of the Mississippi. Now, the government interpreted the three years as starting in 1832. What? Which gives... Yes. Which gives them one year to move west. Crap. So Fort King is reopened in 34 and a new agent to the Seminole, a Mr. Willie Thompson, is appointed. And given and given the task of persuading in quotes the Seminoles to move to west of the Mississippi. So he calls the chiefs together at Fort King in October to talk to them about their move west. At which point, these chiefs informed Thompson that they had no intention of moving. Yeah, I don't blame them. And they did not feel bound by the Treaty of Payne's landing. At which point, Thomas requests reinforcements. He reports that the Indians, after they had received the annuity purchased an unusually large quantity of power and lead. So he's using Bush's...
1: WMD's excuse. What could they be using it for? Hunting? No, they must be preparing to attack. General Clinch also
0: warns Washington that the Seminoles did not intend to move and that more troops would be needed to force them to move. So in March of 1835, Thompson calls the chiefs together because he wants to read a letter from Andrew Jackson to them. In this letter, Jackson said, quote, "...should you refuse to move. I have then directed the commanding officer to remove you by force." The chiefs, they asked for 30 days to respond. So, a month later, the chiefs told Thompson that they were not going to move west which starts an argument. And General Clinch did intervene to prevent bloodshed. Eventually, eight of the chiefs agreed to move, but asked to delay the move until the end of the year. And Thompson and Clinch do agree to this. Now, five of the most important of these chiefs had not agreed to this move. So in retaliation, Thompson declares that these chiefs ...be removed from their positions.
1: So, as you can imagine, relations are deteriorating. I I mean, I didn't think they could deteriorate anymore, but... Yeah, it... Just taking every move right out of the playbook. So, Thompson forbids the sale of guns
0: and ammunition to the tribes. There was a young warrior named... ...Oscola. He was particularly upset by this ban feeling that it equated the tribes with slaves and said, quote, The white man shall not make me black. I will make the white man red with blood and then blacken him in the rain and sun. And the buzzers live upon his flesh.
1: You know, I really can't blame the guy for uh, saying something like that, considering the crap that he's lived through probably his entire life. Yeah, but he also went racist with it a little bit. Just just a little
0: bit, yes. But again, that was the time. Racism was rampant. Even more so than it is now, even though it's still rampant. So, even though this young warrior felt like this, Thompson considered him
1: a friend and gave him a rifle. I... <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I will murder you and everyone you know to defend myself. Oh, you seem like a nice guy. Here you go. Now,
0: when he did start causing trouble, Thompson did lock him up at Fort King for a night. Now, the next day, in order to secure his release, he made him agree to abide by the Treaty of Payne's landing and to bring all of his followers in. Now, as you can imagine, the situation grows worse. And in June of 1835 a group of white people searching for lost cattle found a group of Indians sitting around a campfire cooking the remains of what they claimed was one of their herd.
1: How the heck are you going to know that if it's cooked?
0: Maybe they recognized Bessie. <laughs> that I recognize that haunch. That's Bessie. <laughs> so, of course, these white men disarm and proceed to whip the Indians. Damn it. Two more Indians arrive, and they open fire on these white men. Yeah, can't blame them. You get back to camp, you see three. Some guys attacking your buddies. Yeah, I would have done the same thing. So three of these white men were wounded, and one Indian was killed while another Indian is wounded. This became known as the Skirmish at Hickory Sink. Now, of course, the tribes complained to the Agent Thompson. But of course, Thompson does not give them a good response. So, they become further convinced that they would not receive fair compensations for the complaints that they had of hostile treatment by the white settlers. So, in what is believed to be revenge for the incident at Hickory Sink in August of 1835, Private Kinsley Dalton, which the town of Dalton, Georgia, is named after this guy. He's killed by the tribes while he was
1: carrying mail from Fort Brook to Fort King. Do we know why, or he was just sent out to deliver mail and didn't make it? We don't know exactly why. This is what they believe, that he was killed in revenge.
0: But there's no proof. But who needs proof in this day of age? Of course. In November, Chief Charlie Emathla, wanting no part of any war, decided to remove and sell his cattle at Fort King because he was like, I'm going to get out of here. We're going to go west. And, of course, the other Seminoles saw this as a betrayal because they had declared in a council earlier that any chief who sells his cattle would be sentenced to death. Whoa. So Escola, the young warrior, he meets with Charlie on the trail back to his village and kills him, scattering the money from the cattle purchase across his body. So the officials in Florida,
1: they were like, these guys aren't going anywhere. Prepare for war. And Jackson sent in the army, I imagine. So, yeah, settlers, they start fleeing to safety as
0: the Seminole start attacking plantations and wagon, militia wagons. So two companies totaling around 110 men who were under the command of Major Francis L. Dade were sent from Fort Brook to reinforce Fort King. Now, on December 28th, the Seminoles ambushed the soldiers and destroyed the... decimated them, really. Only two of these soldiers survived and returned to Fort Brooke. And then, a the few days later, there was only one survivor. So, 109
1: men decimated. That is pretty nasty casualties. Incredibly nasty. And I imagine Washington is going to respond with, all righty, if 110 didn't do it, those are rookie numbers. Let's bump those up to uh, 110 times that. Yeah. So over the next few months,
0: Generals Clinch, Gaines, and Winfield Scott, as well as Governor Richard Keith Call, lead large numbers of troops in pursuit of the Seminoles, of course, this did not work very well for them. And while these guys pursued the tribes, the tribes struck isolated farms and settlements throughout the state. They also struck plantation and army forts and burned the Cape Florida Lighthouse. Now, as you can imagine, chasing these guys through the entire state,
1: the army had supply problems. Yeah, maintaining supply lines in a swampy, you know, pretty unindustrialized area without a lot of established roads. Pursuing folks who are somewhat used to the terrain and the area. I can only imagine it was nigh impossible, if I'm being generous. Plus, you know, swamp, mosquitoes, disease... And let's not forget my personal favorite, the old alligator. So, they had to abandon several
0: forts because of all this. So, Major Ethan Allen Hitchcock finds the remains of the date farty in February. He wrote in his journal, quote, "...the government is in the wrong, and this is the chief cause of the preserving opposition of the Indians." who have nobly defended their country against our attempt to enforce a fraudulent treaty. The natives used every means to avoid a war, but were forced into it by the
1: tyranny of our government. Holy crap, we actually have a human being. Yeah, I'm guessing his, uh, attempts at reason and pointing out, hey, we're, we're kind of being jerks, fell on deaf ears. Oh, they always do.
0: Sense and reason always fall on deaf ears. So... November twenty first, eighteen thirty six. The Battle of Wahoo Swamp. The tribes fought against American forces numbering twenty five
1: hundred and drive them back. And how many people did the tribes have to work with?
0: We do not know. Hmm. It is unknown. Among the dead Americans was David Monac, who was the first Native American graduate of West Point. Now, this skirmish did restore the tribe's confidence, showing that they did have the ability to hold their ground against their old enemies, the Creek and white settlers. So, in 1836, late in the year, there was a commanding officer change. Major General Thomas Jessup, who was a U.S. quartermaster, was placed in command of this war. All right. He decided on a new approach. He concentrated on wearing them down rather than sending out large groups who were easy to ambush. Now, he did need a large military presence in the state to control it, so he eventually brought a force of 9,000 men into the state under his command. Now, about half of this force were volunteers in the militia. It also included a brigade of Marines and Navy and Revenue Marine personnel patrolling the coasts and inland rivers and streams. So in 1837, the forces begin to make more successes, capturing and killing a number of Indians and escaped slaves. At the end of January, some of these chiefs sent messages to Jessup to arrange a truce. In March, a document was signed by several chiefs stipulating that the tribes would be accompanied by their allies and slaves in their removal to the West. So by the end of May, a number of these chiefs had surrendered. Two of the important leaders, the aforementioned Askola, And Sam Jones did not surrender. And they were, of course,
1: really opposed to the relocation. And I assume the United States responded with, Okay, then. If you won't relocate, we have this nice little patch that has six feet holes in it.
0: That's what they would want to do, yes. Now, on June 2nd, Oscola and Jones, they take about 200 warriors and they enter Fort Brook. What, what do you mean they just enter Fort Brook? It was poorly guarded and they came in and they rescued 700 tribesmen who had, been, who had surrendered. So guess what? The war's on again. <laughs> and Jessup decides that he's not going to trust the word of an Indian ever again. Yeah. So on his orders, General Joseph Marion Hernandez commands an expedition that captures several Indian leaders, which does include Oscala, when they appear for conferences under a flag of truce. Now, a number of them do escape, but Oscala did not escape with them. He ended up dying in prison, probably of malaria. That fierce patriot. That's a bad end for him. Yeah. So Jessup organizes a sweep down the peninsula with lots of different columns of men. Pushing the tribes further south. On Christmas of 1837, a Colonel Zachary Taylor has a column of around 800 men, and they encounter about 400 warriors on the north shore of Lake Okeechobee. These warriors were led by Sam Jones. They were positioned in a hammock surrounded by sawgrass and with a half-mile of swamp in front of them. On the far side of the hammock was the lake, and in this area, the grass was about five feet high the mud and the water about three feet deep. They did this so they couldn't use horses. That makes sense. So this, of course, was their chosen battleground. They had sliced the grass to provide an open field of fire and had notched the trees with rifle holds. They had scouts and treetops to follow the enemy movements. And as Taylor's army came up to this position. Of course, he's going to attack. Right. So at about noon 30, Tyler moves his troops right into the center of the swamp. He was planning to attack them directly rather than try to flank them. All of his men were on foot. As soon as they came within range, the tribe men opened fire. So the volunteers immediately break, and they were not able to be rallied because their commander
1: was fatally wounded. I mean, go for the commanding officer is always uh, a sound strategy. So the fighting
0: in the Sawgrass area was absolutely bloody for five companies of the 6th Infantry every single one of their officers except for one and most of their non-commissioned officers as well were killed and or wounded when they retreated to reform they found that only four men were not injured wow now eventually the army does succeed in driving the tribesmen from the hammock because, I mean, it was, it was
1: two to one. Right. But that, that was a very good, you know, fight on the part of the Native Americans. Oh, absolutely. And they
0: did not capture the tribesmen. They were able to escape across the lake. So, inflict damage, retreat, try again tomorrow. Taylor loses 26 men and 112 wounded while the tribesmen had 11 dead and 14 wounded. But of course, the U.S., they claimed that this battle was a great victory.
1: Mission accomplished. We drove them away.
0: Yeah, they drove them away. They had much higher casualties, but it was still a victory, right? We can always replace those brave souls. So at the end of January, Jessup's troops caught up with a large group of natives, to the east of the lake. Now they set up in a hammock again, but were driven across a wide stream by cannon and rocket fire, where they decided to try to make another stand. Now, after a little while, they again they just fade away, having inflicted more casualties than they suffered themselves. Now the next month, chiefs Tusguski and Halleck Hodjo approached Jessup. With a proposal so they could stop the fighting. And what was this proposal? Well, they wanted to stay in this area south of the lake rather than relocating west. Now, Jessup, he liked the idea, but he had to get permission from Washington. Right. So the chiefs and their warriors camped near the army while waiting for the reply. Now, when the reply comes, the Secretary of War rejects the idea. So Jessup immediately rises up and seizes the 500 Native Americans in the camp. And had them transported west.
1: At least he didn't murder them. I'll give him that. I'll give him that. But that's that's like saying, hey, at least it's only a, a broken foot instead of, you know, an entire broken leg. Mm-hmm. So... Jessup was like in May Uh, I'm done.
0: I don't want to have any more to do with this. So Zachary Taylor comes in to take over Now Taylor had concentrated on trying to keep the Native Americans out of Northern Florida by building small posts at 20 mile intervals across the peninsula So of course this reduced his forces because now he has to man these posts as well So, the winter season was relatively quiet without many major battles. And in Washington and around the country, really, support for the war was starting to dwindle.
1: Oh, you mean people can only uh, enjoy bullying the native population for so long before they start feeling a little guilty? Actually, many of these people think that they had earned the
0: right to stay in Florida. And the war had also become very costly, as you can imagine. So, President Martin Van Buren sent the commanding general of the army, Alexander McComb, to negotiate a new treaty with the Native Americans. And on May 19th, of 1839, McComb announces an agreement. In exchange for a reservation in southern Florida, they would stop fighting. Was this one at least going to be on better land? Well, that's where they wanted to settle anyway. But when the Secretary of War said no... Uh, That's a fair point. So, as the summer passes, the agreement, it seems to be effective. It seems to be like everybody's agreeing to it and following it. Alrighty. And then in July, about 150 Native Americans attack a trading outpost. Ah. It was guarded by 23 soldiers, and Colonel William S. Harney was the commander. He and some of his men do escape by the river, but, of course, the Seminoles kill most of the garrison, as
1: as well as a lot of the civilians. And that's just the uh, incident they need to kickstart it again. Well, a lot
0: of the people blamed the, quote, Spanish Indians. But others suspected Sam Jones, who was one of the guys who agreed to the treaty with Macomb. When Jones was questioned by them, he promised to turn the men responsible for the attack over to Harvey in little over a month. But before that time was up, two soldiers that were visiting Jones's camp were murdered. Yeah, the, um,
1: this is going to go poorly.
0: So the army tries to use bloodhounds to track the Indians that carried out the attack. At least they're
1: trying to go after the guys that actually did the attack right now. Credit where it's due. That is better than what they have done in the past. But of course, Florida's
0: a swamp, so the bloodhounds were not effective. Completely lose the scent. Mm-hmm. So in may... Taylor was like, all right, it's time for somebody else to come in. So they bring in General Walker Keith Armistead. And Armistead immediately goes on the offensive. He was actively campaigning during the summer, looking for hidden camps. They also burned fields and drove off livestock. So by the middle of the summer, the Army had destroyed about 500 acres of Native American crops. Jeez. And
1: that's... Yep. I I have no words.
0: The Navy sends its sailors and Marines up rivers and streams and into the Everglades. Lieutenant John T. McLaughlin was given command of a joint Army-Navy amphibious force to operate in Florida. So he established
1: a base at T-Table Key in the Upper Florida Keys. Well, at least they're finally realizing that they need to consider this, you know, from both a land and sea angle, considering it's Florida. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they've
0: always been in the river. So there is a milestone here from December of 1840 to January of 1841, Lieutenant McLaughlin's forces crossed the Everglades from east to west in dugout canoes, which is the first group of white people to complete a crossing. Huzzah! <laughs>
1: I'm I'm sorry if I'm a little distracted by the genocide. Yeah.
0: So, the Indian Key is a small island in the Upper Florida Keys. Early in the morning on August 7th of 1840. A large party of, quote, Spanish Indians sneaked onto the Indian key. Now, amazingly, one man was awake and raises the alarm after spotting these guys. There were about 50 people living on the island. So because of the alarm, 40 were able to escape. All right. So the naval base on the key was manned by a doctor a few of his patients, and five sailors under a midshipman. They mounted a couple of cannon on barges and attacked the Indians. The Indians, of course, fired back at the sailors with musket balls, loaded in a cannon on the shore. So they were going
1: for the big shotgun. If we fire hundreds at once, something is bound to hit. Mm Mm-hmm. Now,
0: the cannons on the barges, when they were fired the recoil, they broke them.
1: Broke the cannon or broke the barge?
0: The cannon. (laughs) They, the recoil actually sent them into the water making the sailors retreat. That's pretty funny. And then after this, the Indians looted and burned the buildings on Indian Key. In December, Colonel Harney, who had 90 men, found a Native American camp deep in the Everglades. And him and his men killed the chief and hanged a lot of his men.
1: On what charge?
0: Being Indian. Ah,
1: that, that horrible, horrible crime. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you, you guys really did a great service.
0: So Armistead receives $55,000 to use to bribe the chiefs to surrender. A Tallahassee chief does surrender, but most of his men did not. Um, Tungusiki does accept $5,000 to bring 60 of his people to them. And chiefs of less noble upbringing receive $200 each. And every one of their
1: warriors got $30 and a rifle. Okay, so the less noble, as he liked to describe them, were given a whopping $7,000 by today's money. Not sure how that's supposed to help your tribe with a intercontinental relocation. Well, I mean, every little bit helps.
0: (laughs) He hangs his head in shame. So, by the spring of 1841, about 450 Seminoles were sent west. And another 236 were at Fort Brooke waiting for transport out there. He estimates that 120 warriors had been shipped west during his time. And that no more than 300 warriors now remained in Florida. Well, how accurate was that estimate? Well, since this is a third war, probably not very good. So in May, he was replaced by Colonel William Jenkins Worth as the commander. Worth had to cut back on this now unpopular war. So he releases about a thousand employees and consolidates the commands. But he does carry on with the campaign. He sends out search-and-destroy missions during the summer and drive the Seminoles out of northern Florida. So at this time, this is pretty much just a war of attrition. Some of these Native Americans do surrender to avoid starvation, while others were captured when they came in to negotiate surrender. In the last battle of the war, General William Bailey, who was a prominent planter of Jack Bellamy, leads 52 men on a three-day pursuit of a small band of Tiger Tail's Braves, who had been doing attacks on settlers. He surprises
1: them in their encampment and kills all 24 of them. So even if they tried to surrender, I imagine he was... I'm sorry, we're not in a prisoner-taking mood today.
0: I don't know whether this was a fight to the last man or just a massacre, but the last shot of the Second Seminole War was fired by a 16-year-old there. So Colonel Worth recommended in 1842 that those Native Americans that are left, be left in peace, he got authorization to leave the remaining Native Americans on an informal reservation in southwestern Florida and to declare that the war was done. So he announces this on August 14th, which is the same month Congress passes the Armed Occupation Act, which provided free lands to settlers who improved land and were prepared to defend themselves from Indians. So, in other words, go steal this land from the Indians and shoot anybody who tries to stop you.
1: USA. USA. Uh, not, not great.
0: No. So, at the end of 42, the Native Americans that were left in Florida living outside of the reservation, were rounded up and shipped west. They were like, well, you didn't listen. We're just going to ship you to Montana or wherever, somewhere west of the Mississippi. And by April, the Army had been reduced to one regiment in Florida. Now, in November of 43, Worth reported that there were about 95 seminal men, 200 women and children living on the reservation that were, that was in Southwest Florida and declared that they were no longer a threat. So this second war cost around
1: $40 million. Well, we're, uh, we're getting past rookie numbers now. Um, I mean, obviously this war spanned a while. But going off 1842 bucks, that roughly translates to about one and a half billion. Wow, that is not chump change. No, so I mean we could probably round up to a little under two, since uh, this went all the way back to the 30s.
0: Yeah, that's about a quarter of an aircraft carrier. (laughs) So, there were more than forty thousand U.S. military who served in the war. And the cost in lives was about 1,500 soldiers, mostly from disease, as
1: conflicts usually. Right. I was going to say most of those probably were from, you know, just Florida being an inhospitable swamp than, you know, actually dying to uh, native warriors. But
0: that's the way most wars go anyway most people die from conditions rather than combat. So it is estimated that a little more than 300 regular U.S. Army, Navy, and Marine Corps personnel were killed in action along with 55 volunteers. Um, there is, of course, no record of the Native Americans who were killed, but we can assume that it the number is way higher. And of course homes and a lot of their personal effects were
1: destroyed. Well, I was going to say between the institutionalized intentional starvation, between the poor land they were put on and stuff, the fighting, it, it, it was what? An estimate of 26K and then 4 or 5K um, slaves for the tribes? 22,000 Native Americans with about 5,000 slaves. Okay. And considering, uh, how white settlers in the army didn't really give a crap whether you were an armed warrior or an unarmed, you know, native just looking to farm the land and survive, never mind if you were, you know, a child, I I would say it's safe to say that we're probably looking at a fairly high number KIA.
0: Yeah, plus the ones that went west... A lot of them died of disease and starvation. And so that's that's no good either. Yeah.
1: Sorry that this series of conflicts is a bit of a downer, folks. But, uh, yeah. It's important to know. It's, yeah. Just because it sucks doesn't mean we shouldn't be acknowledging it and bringing it out from, uh, under the rug. Like, if you don't know this stuff... You know, it's far too easy to accidentally repeat it.
0: Yeah, that is what we don't want to do, is repeat it. But you never know.
1: Anyway, we'll uh, knock out the
0: rest of this conflict on the next episode, and then move on to the next one. So, Steven, anything you
1: want to say before we pull back into port? Bleep bleepin' Andrew bleepin' Jackson. And with that, you
0: can reach out to us at email at usnavyhistorypodcast History Podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tweet at us at USN History Pod. And we want to wish you fair winds and following seas. US Naval History Podcast departing.